0: You're listening to Scalet Sisters, episode number 14. Welcome to Scalet Sisters, the podcast for the classical homeschooling mama who seeks to learn and grow while she's helping her children learn and grow. Galay Sisters is a casual conversation about topics that matter to those of us in the trenches of classical homeschooling, who yearn for something more than just checking boxes and getting it all done. I'm your host, Brandy Vensel. You can find me at Afterthoughts, that's my main blog, and also teaching reading with Bob books, which is where I keep my line of printable phonics lessons. My guest today is the one and only Wes Callahan, and I am thrilled... If you can believe it, I got through the entire interview without acting like a total fangirl. Wes Callahan, for those of you who don't know, grew up on a farm in Idaho, graduated with a degree in history from the University of Idaho, and has been teaching literature and history for 30 years. For the last 20 years, he has run Scola Classical Tutorials, live internet courses in the great books, and Hill Abbey Hall, a one-year post-high school residence study program. He speaks regularly at classical Christian education conferences, leads summer courses in early church history, has contributed to books and journals on classical education, and leads tours of Greece and Turkey. Wes and his wife Danny have six grown children and twelve grandchildren. Wes and Danny live in an old farmhouse in northern Idaho near Wes's parents, and most of the kids and grandkids where six generations of the family have lived on the same farm. This episode is sponsored by Start Here, the definitive starting place for studying Charlotte Mason. When Charlotte Mason was trying to distill her educational philosophy into its simplest form, she ended up with 20 core principles. These are the 20 most important aspects of her philosophy. Using the book for the children's sake, Charlotte Mason's volumes, articles from her magazine, The Parents Review, the best blog posts on these subjects, and discussion questions meant to help you dig deeply Start Here is a comprehensive study guide to the big ideas governing Charlotte Mason's philosophy. It's perfect for a Scalae Sisters group. Just head on over to afterthoughtsblog.net slash starthere and use the discount code SISTERS to get 15% off at checkout. On today's show, Wes and I discuss why some children are resistant to pagan literature and what to do about it. We also get to find out what he's reading in his free time, and what advice he'd give to parents whose children are signing up for online classes. And so, without further ado, let's get to it. We can start, and the first segment that we do, or that I do, is, we call it our Scolay RDA, but it's basically where we share what we are reading or thinking about or learning, basically how we're spending our leisure time. And so, would you like to share with us what you – I'm sure everyone's going to be really curious. What does Wes Callahan read in his <laughs> spare time? <laughs> sure.
1: Yeah, sure. That'd be great. Well, one of the th- the thing I'm reading currently uh, for my leisure time uh, is a novel written uh, in the in the 1920s that I've heard about and had recommended to me by a number of people over the years. I just never got around to reading and I finally am. It's called Kristen Lovren's Daughter oh. by a Norwegian woman named Sigrid Unset who wrote a trilogy of novels, and it's collected now into one big, thick volume by Penguin Classics. became very famous and very popular back as soon as she wrote it in the 20s and 30s, 40s. I think it's always Mm -hmm. been kind of a bestseller. It's really intriguing. She won the Nobel Prize for Literature and so forth. It's set in medieval Norway in the early 1300s. I'm always kind of a sucker for medieval stuff, and some of my favorite (laughs) modern novels are set in the Middle Ages. Uh, Mm -hmm. The Name of the Rose by Umberto Eco, set in the 1300s. Yeah. Uh, a recently published novel that guys like Rod Dreher and Eric Metaxas are really, really highly recommending called Loras, a set in medieval Russia. And now this, Kristen Lovren's Daughter, set in medieval Norway. Very mm-hmm. fascinating novel. It's got a lot of really interesting things to say and underlining quotes and so on. Just uh, fascinating, very rich. And it does. I don't want to go on too long, so tell me to shut up if I need to. Oh,
0: no, you're fine.
1: <laughs> but one of the things it does, and one of the reasons I like those other two novels, this now the linking this with those other two three favorite novels set in the Middle Ages, It captures the feel of uh, that medieval world very well. And the people who wrote these novels, and now Onset has done the same thing with this novel, they understand the Christianity that pervaded the Middle Ages, and they understand the mindset, uh, in the case of uh, medieval southern Europe anyway, the name of the rose and so on, bookish nature, how how much the the medievals, especially the monks, loved books, and how the written, Mm. printed word was so powerful to them. And now here, in this novel, she really understands the country in the time of Norway, which is starting to just come into the sphere of European civilization from the old Viking paganism and so on. So, a very interesting book, and I highly recommend it.
0: Hmm. I usually try to choose a novel for reading over our Christmas break, and I might have to put that on my list. (laughs)
1: Yeah, it's worth considering.
0: Well, my Skolet RDA for today is actually not a book, which I usually have a book or four that I recommend. But for today, I was going to actually do a podcast that I've been listening to, and it's my own pastor's podcast. He just—well, I shouldn't say just. I just started listening to it. I think he started it at the beginning of 2016. He is doing, trying to do, this is a very audacious goal, but a biblical theology of the whole Bible, starting in Genesis and going chronologically through everything. And so I'm in, I don't know, I want to say Genesis 17 or so. He spent a lot of time on Genesis, and then he's going quicker as he goes on. But it's just been really interesting because I went to seminary, but it was it was not a seminary that was part of the Reformed tradition, and we later became Reformed. And so it's just fascinating to... I feel like I'm getting the education that I didn't get in seminary because it was from a different perspective. It's been great. And it gives me something productive to listen to while I'm driving my high schooler to all the places that he can't drive himself because he's not old enough yet. <laughs> so
1: That's a great idea. And it goes along with the idea of audiobooks and listening to books. I think a lot of people who are in classical education kind of think like it's second rate to listen to a book. You need to be reading a printed page. But that's simply not true. Hmm. Listening to a book is just as good. It has a lot of advantages over reading. You know, parenthetically, I've been thinking over the last few years about the fact that a silent reading was not a thing until the high Middle Ages. People mm-hmm. never read silently. People often know about that passage in St. Augustine's book, The Confessions, where he and his friends are shocked to hear or to see St. Ambrose in the cathedral in Milan reading while moving his lips, but no sounds coming out. You know, wow. <laughs> and that kind of tells us that in the ancient world, in the Greek and Roman and early Christian worlds, all reading was done aloud, and people expected to hear not just to see with their eyes. In fact, mostly to hear. So listening to audiobooks and listening to podcasts is actually a really great way to sort of recreate what much of early Western culture thought the art of reading should be. It's engaging the ears. And if you're reading aloud yourself, you're engaging the muscles of your mouth and your tongue, tasting the words. So uh, the book is coming in through more gates than just the eyes. It's coming in through the ears and the mouth. So hearing, listening to something is a great way to engage with books.
0: I love that. I've never really thought through that very much before. We might have to do a whole podcast on that sometime.
1: (laughs) You're right. I tell my students all the time in my great books classes, I tell them, read aloud all the time, or at least as much as you can, especially when it comes to poetry or any great literature. Hmm. They know I'm just, I'm death on speed reading. I think speed reading is a travesty. Oh, I agree. Speed reading a good book is like, you know, speed eating through your mother's Thanksgiving meal. How rude to her, and you lose all the nutrition.
0: (laughs) I'm going to try that next time I'm schooled. I have a little daughter that speeds through. Every book she touches, I'm going to have to...
1: There you go. See if it works.
0: I'll see if the food metaphor will help her. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's go ahead and move on to our conversation for today. And I was going to tell you kind of where this is coming from for me. Over the summer, I read Grant Horner's book, John Milton, Classical Learning and the Progress of Virtue. And in it, he talks a lot about... Well, first of all, he's talking about Milton and his view on censorship and about he was very against censorship. And in the context of that, he talks about Milton's insistence that we wrestle with ideas. And he says at one point, I I got the book out so I could say it correctly, but he says, the only way we can grow virtue back into our souls is to wrestle with evil, which means it has to be faced directly. So he's going through and he's talking about all the ways in which to be truly educated, we have to wrestle with the ideas that we are uncomfortable with and i think is it aristotle who says something similar i feel like he says something similar about like the truly educated man is someone who can kind of entertain an idea without adopting it Mm -hmm. yeah i kind of felt like those went together for instance you don't really have to convince me that pagan lit is worth reading but I was hoping that maybe the topic could focus more on this idea that we have to wrestle. And so what, what do we do with children who really don't want to, <laughs> to wrestle with right, those right, things?
1: Right. Well, I, I suppose it could be approached in two or at least uh, two ways and maybe more, but two that occur to me. One, just on the level of regardless of whether it's pagan lit or any literature at all, if it's difficult then the issue arises. You know, they need to wrestle with things that are difficult, whether we're talking mm-hmm. about you know, pagan literature or just hard concepts in science or, or history of philosophy. Difficulty is the issue. So, on this count, it's just a matter of trying to counter the general cultural malaise, you know, that we struggle against, where in our culture, easy and convenient is the thing, and people hate hard work. Mm-hmm. They hate difficult things in our technology, in our smartphones and our computers and our cars the job of technology is always to make things easier and cut out the difficulties and smooth the way and eliminate difficulties and in some things of course you know that's good you want a mixer on the counter to work you want the shower not to get clogged up and you want the car <laughs> right not, you know get you where you want to go but at the same time there's a downside and this is the struggle people have when they think philosophically about technology like neil postman with amusing ourselves to death or um a recent book called Shopcraft of Soulcraft and, mm. uh, and some subsequent books by a guy whose name just suddenly escaped me. But a lot of people <laughs> engage philosophically in you know, Nicholas Carr, how, uh, how the internet is, you know, the shallows, how the internet is ruining our brains or whatever. Yeah. So the people who grapple with this, and one of the things is that We really are, in a broad sense in our culture, striving for convenience and ease. And that makes the project of teaching our children, of learning, of classical education, makes that project much harder. Because as you were just alluding to, classical education, part of the virtue and the benefit that we gain from the right kind of education is the ability to work hard with our mental muscles, the ability to struggle. Struggle is good. Come to think of it, that's actually kind of at the heart of learning Christian faithfulness. Right, in a lifetime of a sanctification, struggle true. is what disciplines and trains us and draws us closer to Christ. It's the trials and the disciplines and the hard times. The easy times aren't the ones where we do our most learning. It's when things are ripped away and we fall on our faces and we cry out to God. Uh, it's struggle that teaches us. And the same thing's true in education. So, you know, our poor kids, all the culture around inundating them all the time is teaching them ease, convenience, find the easy path through, find the quick way. I'm not actually offering any answers, I, I realize. <laughs> Lab. No, but, that's okay. But that's at least at least being aware of the problem is helpful, right?
0: Absolutely. Well, and I'm, th- I'm wondering here, are there things that we can do to make it easy? I mean, I'm thinking, because you related it to science, and I'm thinking, well, with science, you know, we do try to make sure that we don't throw them into the deep end of chemistry or physics, but we try to build yeah. knowledge sequentially yeah. as we go along. So with literature, is there something similar that you think we should be doing?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, uh, if we think about another analogy... Our, our culture still somehow, weirdly, gets the idea of hard work and things like sports and exercise. You sign up for a gym, you start working out. People know that till when you lift weights, you start slow and you, and you work up, you increase the reps, you increase the weights. Uh, and you have to be patient. It takes time. Over a period of months, you, know, you lose weight and you get firmness and get toned and your muscles increase and you can lift more. That's a great analogy for what happens in our souls, you know, when we struggle with literature. So, we, we don't want to dump kids in the deep end, as you said. We want to find ways to get them into it that won't overstress them immediately. But at every step, it should be just a little bit harder than they like. It should be a little bit more than their comfort level. And as soon as they mm. become comfortable at that level, you know, like, hey, you can lift so much weight easily, okay, add more weights. You never stop and say, okay, I feel good. As soon as you start feeling good and comfortable, increase it. But what that does for the kids is it lets them know that they can do it. Right? And not only that they can do it, but they can do more. Uh, and also we have to, um, mm-hmm. we have to try and, And this is part of our job as parents and as educators, is try and find ways of learning delightful when we can. Not that education should always be amusement, but it can be a delight. And we need to teach and uh, engage our kids in such a way that they take pleasure in the hard work and they take pleasure in overcoming the obstacles. How that works out, you know what so many of these online uh, homeschooling associations and so on are doing a great job thinking through those sorts of things, but that's the principle behind it. We start mm. small and slow, but always make sure it's just a little bit beyond their comfort zone so that they're increasing that uh, muscle strength.
0: What is your opinion of using a high quality retelling? So for example, if I was going to read The Iliad with my children, maybe I would start with something like... Rosemary Sutcliffe's Black Ships Before Troy or something like Do you think that that is useful to do it that Oh, yeah.
1: Way? Ab- absolutely. Yeah. Because the best ones, I mean, Rosemary Sutcliffe's, you know, that's, uh, the Black Ships Before Troy is a great example. Although it's a retelling, she's digested the story and put it in simpler terms. She's done it in a great way. There's a classic tone to her retelling. It's good literature in itself for a certain age, for a certain level. That wouldn't be good literature for a master's program in classical literature, but it's but it's perfect for children of a certain age. I even like mm. looking through it with my grandkids. So, yeah, it is <laughs> it's possible to reduce it and distill it down and make it easier, but still have a high quality.
0: Okay, so I'm wondering, I have a couple hypothetical children, but they're actually students that I've encountered myself in real life. One of them in my own home. <clears throat> so
1: <laughs> I have hypothetical students like that, too.
0: Do you? <laughs> I'm just trying to protect the guilty. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Exactly.
0: But uh, so uh, let's say I have boy A and girl B. So let's talk about boy A first. Okay. So boy A, very bright and is more than willing to wrestle with the hard work aspect, but has decided that because there are no other gods, there is nothing that he has to learn from, say, Homer. Okay. And so he just rejects specifically pagan literature outright for that reason. So how does a parent, because I've met a number of parents that have this in their homes, <laughs> what, what can sure. a parent's approach be?
1: Well, you could start with something like this. Uh, I don't know how useful it is, I don't know, but you can start with examples. Um, does he read anything else by people with whom he doesn't agree entirely? And obviously, except for the Bible, everything you read is by a person with whom you don't agree entirely. So why do we suddenly have this reaction to the you know, to pagan literature when we don't have that reaction to other things? That's depending on the, on the intellectual level of the you know, hypothetical child. Mm-hmm. That may or may not be useful. Here's what I think the real answer is. The real answer is that since God made all human beings, all humans are made in the image of God. All human beings have his image and a certain knowledge of him stamped on their conscience. Everyone has a mm-hmm. certain knowledge of the existence of God. The scripture tells us over and over again, And all humans, including pagans, get some things right, including some things that are true in philosophy and beautiful in poetry and good in history and so on. Pagans get some things right because they're made in the image of God. To say that there's nothing valuable in a pagan because he's not a Christian uh, is to deny them being creatures of God, to deny that God has made all. Of course, the kid's not consciously denying that, but that would be the conclusion of saying this. So we don't want to be in that position of denying God's common grace. Because until they die, even rebellious pagans, or unbelieving pagans who never heard the name of Jesus Christ, until they die, they still have the witness of God on them. What happens after death when they Mm -hmm. face the judgment is another story. But until their death, they've got the image of God on them and are capable of acknowledging, expressing some truths. And for the pagans before Christ, I think they were in a better, uh, if you understand my meaning, in a more innocent position than unbelievers that we might read now. Because mm-hmm. now, non believers in, we- in Western culture have the evidence of 2,000 years of Christianity all around them, and they're sinning against greater light by remaining unbelievers. But the pagans like Aristotle and Socrates and Homer and Herodotus and Sophocles, those guys didn't have the witness, that witness of creation, but they didn't have the residue of a Christian civilization around them like we do. Ours is falling apart mm-hmm. and it's still everywhere in our culture. So those pagans weren't sinning against uh, as much light. And C.S. Lewis is big on this argument, and I'm a great fan of C.S. Lewis. He talks this way as well. Paganism had a certain kind of innocence about it because it's not rejecting things that was in its face. Of course, a pagan who uh, continues to resist even the little witness he has in his conscience and in the stars and so on, uh, unrepentant, he's going to face God at the judgment, of course. Right. but. By innocence, I mean uh, he's sinning against less light. And I think those early pagans mm. were trying to find, they were feeling their way after truth, as Paul says in Acts 17, and in the discussion about Cornelius, we have an example in the book of Acts of a pagan who's trying to be faithful to the, what knowledge he has. So the idea here uh, is that there's truth mixed in with the falsehood, and we must not throw out everything because we know there's some falsehood. Now, mm. you can use a couple metaphors. One of these is, you know, separate the wheat from the chaff. That's what we're doing. Throw out the baby with the bathwater, right? Uh, The metaphor that the early church fathers (laughs) used is plundering the Egyptians. This is something that Augustine and Basil the Great and some fathers before them, they used this metaphor, drawing from Exodus, where God tells Moses, go to the Israelites, tell them to go to their Egyptian neighbors while they're still in slavery in Egypt, and ask them to borrow articles of gold, silver, fine clothing, and so on. And then take that stuff with you when you go out into the desert where I lead you. God says, and so you shall plunder the Egyptian it's as though God, mm-hmm. here's how the early church fathers read that. God is saying, I gave good gifts to the Egyptians, but in the hardness of their heart, they didn't. They weren't thankful to me. So I'm now taking that stuff away from them again and giving it to you Israelites. And as he says all, all the way through Deuteronomy and everywhere else in the Old Testament, remember where you get these good gifts. Don't get proud in the hardness of your heart. Remember to be thankful and I'll continue to bless you. Don't become like the Egyptians or I'll have to take the good gifts away from you too. So plundering the Egyptians is taking the good stuff that God had given them rejecting the bad stuff, which is a distortion, mm-hmm. idolatry, and immorality of all kinds, but taking the good stuff, beauty, goodness, and truth. So the, the, the And the church fathers, Augustine and Basil the Great, and, and uh, one of the earlier Gregories, I forget which, say this precisely in the context of education. In fact, Basil the Great in the 300s is mm-hmm. saying this exactly in a discussion of education. Uh, he's talking about young men because they're the ones who went to formal schools, though young girls would often be educated but not in schools. Right. But he says young boys should be taught the classics, but we teach them to plunder the Egyptians, discriminate, use your minds, do the hard work of separating out the truth, compare it to scripture and the church's teaching and separate the good from the bad. So there's Mm. the real answer that all men, including the ancient pagans, are made in the image of God. There's good and bad mixed together, as C.S. Lewis said in some place. There's no such thing as absolute unmixed falsehood. Nobody would believe it. The power of falsehood to deceive us comes (laughs) from the fact that it's mixed with truth and our hearts resonate with the truth because we're made in God's image. And if we're not careful, we can be drawn away by truth that's bent or mixed with non-truths. That's the heart of the answer, and I want to then say one more thing along this. Uh, I've learned that answer for reading church history. The Christians of the past teach us and model for us how to study pagan literature. One of the terrible travesties of modern education, including classical, so-called classical Christian education, is that we give short shrift to, to church history. But the history of the church for the last 2,000 years is our people, our brothers and sisters who, especially in the first three and four hundred years when Christians were struggling against uh, against a thoroughly pagan culture, they were doing the hard work of trying to figure out how to uh, engage pagan education, which they all had, without destroying your soul. So if we ignore them, we're Mm -hmm. trying to reinvent the wheel. We should pay far more attention to church history, the history of our family, the history of God working to redeem the world through his church, the body of Christ. And those early Christians have a lot to tell us about just this question. What do you do with pagan literature? In fact, it was one of the big issues for educational discussions among many of the church fathers. It's everywhere when you start looking for it. Tertullian, one of the early church theologians around 200, is famous for his phrase, what hath Jerusalem to do with Athens? He was a little skeptical about Christians, Jerusalem, uh, mixing up with Athens, pagan literature. But he raised the issue well. Most of the Christians were much more sympathetic to pagan literature than than he was because they said, even the pagans have the common grace of God on them. Even they have got some things right, and we need to to appropriate the good stuff and be careful to reject the bad stuff. And most of the great church fathers we love, Athanasius, Augustine, Jerome, Gregory, Basil, Mm -hmm. John Chrysostom, and on and on, most of them were classically educated, studied a lot of pagan literature, but were thoroughgoing, godly, spiritual men. Hmm. So there's, I, I know I'm just blabbing on and on, but.
0: No, I love it. I, I have to tell you that it's from listening to you say something similar a few years ago that I actually kind of redid our high school curriculum. And so oh, really? my son is reading Eusebius and Athanasius's right. On the Incarnation right, yeah. this year for his church history.
1: Well, those guys, Clement of Alexandria, there's all, I mean, on and on. So really, I have kind of a twofold answer. One is, the principle that even the pagans got some things right. You know, even a blind squirrel finds a nut now and then. All, you know. <laughs> but that's the principle. But I've learned that principle by something else I think is important. We need to listen to the Christians of the past and see how they've answered this question. Otherwise... We're just feeling blindly around, kind of trying to come up with on our own. And worship of the scripture tells us we're supposed to listen to our leaders uh, and imitate them, according to the last chapter of Hebrews and so Mm -hmm. on. And that includes the leaders of the past, not just the pastor of my church, but but the great men that the church all Mm -hmm. through the centuries have acknowledged as valuable. So the Athanasiuses, the Augustines, the Jeromes, the Eusebiuses, you know, the venerable beads and so on. Yeah. I think if we if we made a bigger deal as we ought to of studying church history and reading the fathers and so on, you know they're not scripture, and we don't have to believe that everything they say is infallible. But they've done tremendous work, and everybody in all Christian communions today—Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox, Anglican, Lutheran—everybody acknowledges those guys as our as our fathers in the faith. Right. And so, if we were to study them, we would see that they grappled with the same question. We should learn from them instead of reinventing the wheel.
0: Okay. So if I'm a mom and I say oh, I've never read a church father of any kind ever. What would your like? Give me two titles that where you think I should start. Oh yeah, well
1: one. I mean, you mentioned Eusebius. Eusebius is great because he, he's history. Mm-hmm. and He's just he, he's telling stories, and so it's the story of the first mm-hmm. three hundred years of the church. But he's quoting people, talking about events and persecutions and heresies and martyrdoms and the great leaders. Uh, so uh, histories are always uh, always easier to access than you know philosophy and theology. Although uh, most of the church fathers are great. As uh, again, here to echo C.S. Lewis, most of the church fathers are great because they were able to express philosophy and theology in a clear and accessible way. So Eusebius is one. Hmm. Uh, I would say Augustine's Confessions is another brilliant and personal and heartwarming and heart yanking and, you know, it's a very candid and open and honest account of his own struggles until he finally came to the faith and how God drew him against his will, kicking and screaming back into the kingdom. Wonderfully accessible Hmm. and delightful and just ripped I keep quoting C.S. Lewis because I kind of recently got back into him to refresh my memory. But uh, Lewis (laughs) wrote a spiritual autobiography called Surprise by Joy, one of his best books. It's like he had Augustine's Confessions in mind. It's the same sort of thing. So if you've read and loved Lewis, Augustine's Confessions would be right there. But I mean, for anybody, that would be the second title. So Eusebius and Augustine's Confessions would be two great books to start with. And both of them are widely available uh, in print, many different translations and editions, and both available in audiobook as well.
0: Oh, I hadn't thought about getting an audiobook. Hmm. Since I'm living in my car these
1: days. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's tailor-made for you.
0: Exactly. Well, let's talk about Girl B, because she's very different from Boy A. Your approach may still be similar, but we'll, we'll see. So she is... Insecure. She doubts herself on everything. She worries a lot. She struggles with her faith and she thinks that asking questions is a sign of weakness. And so she doesn't want to entertain stories of other gods because she's scared. For instance, one of the big questions that she asks is uh, what does she say? She says, Well, I think I'm right, but other people think they're right too. You know, how, how do I know that I'm actually yeah. right? So she'd rather just not talk about it. <laughs> sure.
1: Yeah, that's a common response. We all have that response. I mean, I feel that way very often. Mm-hmm. just don't want to engage because part of it would depend on how old she is, you know, and how capable intellectually, if she's willing, uh, how capable she is. You know, imagine, you know, say, early teens or something, or mid-teens, perhaps. Hypothetically mm-hmm. speaking, I have, a, I have a lot of students in that category. Uh, and so one okay. possible response would be to acknowledge, uh, yeah, maybe I, I do need to be careful about what I give to her because – I don't want to cause her to freak out. Although someone who is in her position actually probably is in less danger of losing her faith than someone who thinks that they're rock solid, right? Hmm. Her wow. very anxiety and worry over it, although it's probably misplaced, means she's more aware. True. One of my I raised four daughters, and they're all married and have kids now. But one of them, when she was in her teenagers, was a real worry. And she'd come to me and she'd say, Dad, what if I really don't love God? What if I don't love God enough? What if I sin? Right. Say, honey, in the first place, the fact that you're so worried about it, it is a really good thing. If you didn't love God, you wouldn't worry about loving Him. <laughs> right. So the, the kind of people who have that kind of worry do have already. There's kind of a built-in defense. But that, that aside, they're tender in certain ways. Then you want to be kind of careful. But and then another approach is more about uh, parental counseling and saying, you know, uh, look, if you're afraid that someone else might persuade you, you're afraid that they're right. Then simply to ignore it is to always be living with the worry that someone else might be right. And you never know how strong your position is because you wouldn't let them challenge you. That's not really to ignore and to refuse to engage uh, is not a solution to anxiety because now you've introduced another one. What if they're right and you never found out because Mm -hmm. you weren't willing to engage? The only way you can know for sure that you're right is to engage with them and risk them being right. But that's mm. the kind of parental counseling that mothers and fathers who know their children and know their frames and understand their vulnerabilities and their weakness and strength they have to engage and figure out how to talk to them on that level. But say, and it might be a long, ongoing conversation, but the gist of it would be, uh, honey, there's no need to be afraid because in the first place, uh, if what you believe really is true, the truth going to win. Mm. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I've often thought about this. This can be a tricky and even a dangerous thing to say, but I still think it's true. If the other person is right, then maybe I should believe it. I want to follow truth wherever it is. I happen to be fully persuaded that the Christian faith is true. So I ought not to be afraid of encountering someone else. Of course, this is all very tricky and sophisticated because other things uh, uh, come into play. For example, if your daughter, at whatever her age, this hypothetical daughter be, she encounters some non-Christian friend who's also her age. (laughs) They're equal intellectually, more or less. But suppose that uh, this young girl encountered some mid-20s young man who was also in the church, but he's been going to a liberal college, he's doing a master's degree in philosophy, and he's glib and he's eloquent and he knows a lot of stuff, and he can just completely bowl her over. She doesn't know nearly as much as him, and he can persuade her. Hmm. But then, I mean, she might be able to turn around and say, wait a second, I'm not going to believe you yet, because there might be somebody out there who is not liberal and losing his faith, who's a solid Christian, who knows more than you. If it's just an intellectual combat, you can always find somebody smarter on each side. So we have to have conversations and how these take place, depends on the parents and the the children and the personalities and so on. But at some point, there has to be a conversation about how we know. In philosophy, this is called epistemology. It doesn't have to be a big, tricky concept. It's just how do you know and how can you be certain? The Christian faith tells me that not only should I listen to uh, 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 what seems to be the truth in argumentation, but I need to pay attention to character. So one reason that your daughter is right to trust the Christian faith is because she's seen her mother and her father, she's seen her family, and she sees the lives they live And if she only listens to this smart philosophy major, she might be wowed by the arguments. But if she could see his life and how he spends his Friday nights and how he treats his friends, and his parents, she might start backpedaling again. We're supposed to pay Mm. attention to character so we can talk to kids about how we know, how can be certain uh, about truth, and and how character is part of what we take into account when we listen to other people. He might sound smart. I might not be able Mm. to win arguments against him, but I don't like the way he treats his mother. I don't like the way he parties on weekends. And that's a good reason to be skeptical about his intellectual arguments. You can't separate the yeah. two. Kind of
0: like Rousseau. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, exactly. There's a great example. Brilliant thinker, wonderful writer, but a moral wretch. Uh, and right. You know, when I was doing a literature work in college, that you know they called this a kind of fallacy that you shouldn't pay attention to biography and historical service. Just read the book. Let the book stand on its own. But the Bible says that's not so. We're not allowed to do that. I'm supposed to pay attention to the character of the people who are talking. So I can read Rousseau and think, right. you know, this this sounds great. But then I look at how he treated his mistress and how he treated his children and how he treated his benefactors. And I go, I, you know, I'm going to have a major, major guard up as I read his book because this man's a moral, right. moral degenerate. Right. So I, I'm, I'm not really answering the question here, but it has to be discussions with a, a young person, girl or boy, who's in that position. It has to be a discussion about not being afraid because there are other ways of protecting yourself. Pay attention to character. Remember that even though they might outsmart you in the, in the argument, that doesn't mean you should give in and believe them because there is always somebody smarter. So there are other things to, to weigh in, uh, in epistemology knowing how to know. So the response to, the, to that girl is not, well, you know, here, just read the book anyway. <laughs> you know, there, there are other, <laughs> right. other discussions that have to take place.
0: Well, it sounds like this hypothetical child should also be accompanied by a parent probably longer than yeah. some other children would be.
1: Yeah. That kind of child can be coached gently and say, well, we'll find some things, you know, let's read this and this. But then as you approach other literature, that she might be more nervous about the discussion. But here's why you don't need to be afraid. You can read this stuff, but you know it's wrong. We can talk about why it's wrong and work your way slowly into the bigger issues.
0: Hmm. So we've mainly been talking about junior high, high school ages. Is there anything that we should do with the young children to set the foundation in order to be able to have these discussions in the older ages? Anything you recommend?
1: Yeah. I think one thing good parents always kind of naturally do anyway, and one of the very best things, we all know this, but it's reading good stories to the kids when they're little. You know, so we read them in mm. the Chronicles of Narnia. We read them fairy tales, and Little Red Hand, Mother the Goose, and Beatrix Potter. Uh, we read stories that are good literature at that level, and they make the right moral points. Mm. Aristotle talks about this and Plato, too. The idea that um, the literature, they don't put it exactly this way. This is kind of my drawing from the things that they say. But both of them argue in this direction, literature, of fiction, imaginative literature, is kind of like emotional boot camp for children. Hmm. You know, if, if a soldier signs up for the army and they immediately ship him off to Iraq where he faces grenades and live fire and bombs on the roads, the kid's going to, you know, he's going to emotionally implode because he's never been around violence and suddenly it's everywhere and his life is in danger at every moment. But no, the military hmm. sends you to boot camp where for eight weeks or so you get to hear the sound of gunshots going over your head, but you're protected. You crawl through the mud and under the concertina wire and you learn to lob dummy grenades and you experience the stress and the hardship without the actual risk until you learn to handle emotionally the risk and then you're sent out into the life war. In the same way, if a person grows up having never encountered in any way death, loss, misery, you know, cancer, uh, hunger, betrayal, and when it suddenly happens to them, they'll be wrecked emotionally and spiritually. So when we read good literature to children when they're young, in the stories, they encounter characters who are cowardly and treacherous, or are loyal and persevere and faithful, you know, the, the Frodo's mm. and the Bilbo's and the Sam Gamgee's and, uh, and you know, the, the Edmonds with the White Witch. We see people sinning and struggling and falling and even dying and mm. other people and how they deal with their grief. We see that in literature when it's not real, so that later, when it really starts happening, when Grandma dies of cancer or Aunt is in the hospital or, you know, Dad gets killed in a car wreck or something, the horrors of life that mm. they encounter them, it won't be so new that they're wrecked by it. They will have learned what the proper spiritual and emotional responses of, of a human being to that kind of sorrow and that kind of wretchedness or conversely, mm-hmm. it's a blessing to the sudden acquisition of great wealth. You know, many people are destroyed just as much by winning the lottery as other people are by the death of a loved one. It just doesn't right. look like We all think we'd like to you know, win the lottery, but How many people's lives are just utterly destroyed by the sudden acquisition of wealth and then the inundation of flatterers and friends coming out of the woodwork and the greed and the ambition, the avarice and buying houses and cars and stuff. When children read literature, they learn how we're supposed to live our lives and how we respond emotionally to good and bad, while the risks aren't as great because it's fiction. Aristotle says this is one of the one of the values of it's not the only, but it's one of the values of drama of theater. We can see on stage tragedy and comedy and romance and so on, and see things played out. And if the story is well constructed, if you know, it's not some postmodernist nihilist angst-ridden thing. But it's you know good story where there's failure and misery, but good is still embraced, and, and people still survive and struggle through it by being virtuous. Then the children know that's what we're supposed to be, and when it really happens in real life, we've been trained. So the answer to the question is: Parents should do what I think parents always naturally do anyway. Read aloud to kids lots and lots. Read them good children's books because it's training them to handle real encounters that come later, which will include more harsh and more severe struggles with later literature, philosophy, and theology by atheists and unbelievers, and you know Muslims and other people who are human beings who've come to the wrong conclusions. And then the fearfulness may not be so bad when we encounter those either. But reading good books hmm. where virtue prevails. There's real evil, but virtue prevails and so on, which most children's stories have. And parents instinctively know that's what they want their kids to read. They don't want their kids to read books where darkness prevails and the witches win or the orcs. Right. Parents don't do that. They naturally know not to do that.
0: You've given me so much to think about today. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and of course, you know, all of this is easy for me to sit here and say, but uh, it really requires every parent to think through how will I apply this principle with my children because we want to take each child into account given their nature and the uh, and kids know that right but at least you know kind of thinking through these broad principles helps us to, to have a foothold and sometimes that's really what we need God's given us a lot of ability to grapple with the situations he's given us our children he's made us parents he puts us in families and he gives us the blessing and the mercy and the grace to do things even when we feel really inadequate so sometimes just being able to hear and discuss the general principles is what we is, is what helps us most and then right. we gather with our friends or have our website and the blogs that you have where we're moms and and, and dads and, and so on get together in their groups or whatever, and they discuss how to work out practically. Having worked on a principle and got that solidified, then the practical discussions can be more uh, profitable. Mm,
0: thank you for all this.
1: It's kind of terrifying, but a lot of fun, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it really is, seriously. <laughs> um, especially with all these hypothetical children. <laughs> right, um, right. Uh, so, is there anything that you would like to add to this before we move on to, the, to our nitty-gritty question? I think, you know, what's always helpful, and I know, you know, I don't think it can be said too much, what's always helpful is the
1: single most important thing any parent can ever do for their child, and they can do this for, the whole lo- for their whole life, is to pray for them every day, but not pray out of fear. Mm. If we believe that God hears our prayers and he loves our prayers, that's the single most important thing we can do, and we shouldn't pray out of fear. But we should pray in confidence and trust that God loves that child far more than I could ever even think of doing. But he loves them. So we Mm -hmm. can ask God, help me to know what to do and say, uh, help her to stay strong. Not out of fear, but out of confidence that God loves them. We can't say that enough. I I think to say that and to remind ourselves that we're praying not out of fear, but out of uh, of our trust in a loving father. And to say that is to help us to kind of grapple with um, the fear and anxiety and worry that parents often have. What if I make a mistake? I'll never have another chance again. The kid will grow up and I'll have regrets. <laughs> right. we, we, we can't we can't live that way. You know, of course we'll make mistakes, but God forgive not only forgives our mistakes, but God can still work in, in the child's life because He loves them. <sighs> and if the if the children know that we're praying for them, and I I know that my parents have prayed for me every day of their life, and I know that they still do, and they're in their 80s and they pray for their 58 year old son. You know, my, my mom had me over for lunch day. My parents live next door, which is a wonderful blessing. My mother, oh, wow. my dad's out of town. His mom had me over for lunch. And she told me, as she constantly does, that she prays for me. And uh, so when oh. children know their parents are praying for them, I think that's uh, that gives the children a lot of confidence. Helps assuage some mm. of the anxieties they feel as they're entering this terrifying teenage years.
0: Thank you. That's so encouraging. Yeah. Well, for our nitty-gritty homeschool question... We have, there are three of us that are the A sisters. You're just meeting with me today. (laughs) But um, we're recognizing that you do a lot of online work. And so we wanted to know, what do you think parents need to know before signing their child up for an online class? And how do they prepare their students for it? I mean, are you seeing students that are unprepared in some way that you wish parents were doing something differently? It's kind of an open-ended question. Just whatever you think. Home school parents should know.
1: Um, no, I think I, I don't generally see students who are unprepared academically or intellectually. In fact, there's a lot of tolerance possible in a class like mine. The kids uh, enter my classes at about the age of fourteen, and there's a wide range of uh, of ability and historical knowledge. Uh, the more well-read they are, the more history they've studied, the better off they are. But but they could come in with a very being having been very poorly prepared in terms of the historical background and so on, and still. The way I and many other teachers uh, teach it, they're going to do okay. So, uh, what they really—and uh, mm. th- this is not like a big, tr- tremendous intellectual struggle. This is just a, this is a, it's a minor technical detail. This is a psychological and social issue. When students at the age of mm. fourteen, sometimes thirteen, come into my classes, there's a kind of social learning curve they have to engage in. Many of them have not, at that age, have not yet been part of. A homeschooling group or part of a class discussion circle where they're familiar with the protocols and the and manners and the charities involved in group give and take and especially when they when they get online very often the students have been very rightly protected from a heavy exposure to the online environment especially social media and chat rooms and so on they've been protected and rightly so so that there's kind of a, a social learning curve they come into the class they've been given permission to engage in a chat room with Mr. Callahan and some other students. And the problem is not usually that they're too shy. That can easily, they can be drawn out and so on. The problem is uh, you mm. being too garrulous and running roughshod over the others or, or feeling anonymous because they're at a computer not in front of other faces. So they might sometimes be tempted mm. to say things that they really wouldn't say uh, in a live situation. And this is not a terrible problem. It's just uh, the one that often uh, shows up for me. I don't, have a, I don't have trouble with their academic preparation. That's almost never a problem. It's just a social thing. And this is also not something where I think parents really need to get a grip and change. This is just normal. (laughs) Uh, So I encourage the parents when their kids first start with me to sit in with the the children, and see how the children engage, hear what I suggest to them, and hear what I expect of them. It's just a learning thing that's natural and they have to go through. So it's not a a failure in anybody's parts. It's just that they're just at that stage when they're starting to become gregarious and enjoy interacting with other people and they have to learn how to do it. So the students who seem to be kind of better at it are students who have, and it's not that everybody should do this, but the students who have perhaps been in situations where they've been required to engage with uh, other people publicly and socially and intellectually, but not just clash wits. Kids are almost always good at that, especially at that age. They love to clash with. but they need <laughs> counsel and encouragement and discipline in manners the give and take of conversation. You know, when someone else starts talking, mm-hmm. shut up and let them talk. Uh, if you have something to right. say, be polite and say it, but be brief. And unlike me here, I'm violating my own principle.
0: <laughs> it's all right; you're the guest. <laughs> today. <laughs> Thank
1: you. Uh, but um, and, and uh, you know, and being encouraging of other people, even if you don't agree with them, you know, saying that's interesting. That I'll have to think about that. Knowing how to encourage other people, so just the social niceties that make human discourse and interchange pleasant. And it's not that they're rude either. I mean, they come from Christian homes. It's just this is kind of the first time they're engaging. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the world in that particular social circumstance. So it's not something where anybody's failing. It's just, a, I see that. And so I encourage parents to sit in with them for a while anyway and watch how the student does and, and help them along. So it's, it's part of their right. natural social growth curve that they're encountering at 12, 13, 14, kind of coming out more on the road. Right. World, you know? And actually, I should, I should say, and, and I'm mentioning this only because I, I've noticed this and, you know, you said, what do I notice? So this is it. But not because it's a huge <laughs> problem. By and large, the students I get are, well, They're all homeschooled, and really I think homeschoolers do a good job of this. In my opinion, uh, and don't want to offend anybody, but in my opinion, homeschoolers, and I've thought this for decades, homeschoolers do a better job of socializing their kids such that the the kids understand what I mean if I have to speak to them in class and say, you know, you really shouldn't do that, you should do this. They know exactly what I mean. Contrary to the old canard, you know, well, if you homeschool your kids, how will they be socialized? We all know that that's an absurd (laughs) I guess it's right. legitimate if, they, if they're ignorant about homeschooling, but that's that's absurd. Homeschoolers are, are almost always better socialized than their non-homeschooling counterparts. So I encourage, you know, I, I would encourage parents to, this is, doesn't require any major, major change. All parents know this. They want this for the kids. But I would encourage counsel and instruction, not just, uh, because, because um, if you think about the fact that, you know, the whole Dorothy Sayers lost tools of learning, trivium stages of learning thing, grammar, logic, and rhetoric, the logic stage is mm-hmm. what they're hitting at 12, 13, 14, that's the stage where they want to engage their wits and their intellect. They're not thinking so much about the social proprieties. That's the rhetoric stage. You now, I'm not <laughs> as big on those stages and, and the clear-cutness of them as they used to be, but it is yeah. true that at 12, 13, kids want to become argumentative, so we, we can corral that and turn it to good advantage, but it right. means that they need to be consciously counseled in the charities and the manners and the protocols of polite human interchange.
0: Hmm. Good advice. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. This has been, I mean, obviously my students are only hypothetical, but uh, it's still been a subject that's very dear to my heart. (laughs)
1: It's been a real pleasure for me. Thank you for inviting me on to, to talk with you. It's been a pleasure.
0: That's it for today. Thank you so much for listening and being a part of the sisterhood of the podcast want to remind you that if you haven't left a review yet, we'd love for you to do so. This helps others find out about our show. Also, don't forget to find us on Facebook. We go in fits and spurts sometimes, it's true, but we do try to share great posts from the Skale sisters and other wonderful blogs out there in internet land. In our next episode, Misty and I will be talking about that other thing we do with our spare time, amusement is not what you think. We promise not to make you feel guilty or give you a hard time. In fact, we think a bit of amusement on occasion is necessary for life. Join us as we explore the difference between amusement and Scalae. Until then, we want to remind you once again that homeschooling is a marathon you needn't run alone. So open up your eyes and look around you. Find your sisters. Right. I think everything's working except that my dog's barking. Hopefully he'll stop (laughs) in a minute.